is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller, and we are broadcasting live online from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Today, AFGE responds to bad faith attacks on federal workers. We've got a report from the Madison City Council. We've got updates on pre-K Alabama, all that and more on today's program. If you want to be part of the show, we've got a phone number and the line is open. That phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can also text the program and leave us a voicemail or send us a text message throughout the week. If you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap here on the radio, uh, or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, because sometimes we do a little extra stuff throughout the week. Sometimes we'll make some good posts. Um, You'll get to see maybe some pictures of us out and about. If you want to do that, then you can find us online. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. You can also listen to potentially some extra stuff on our uh, TikTok channel um, on... uh, wherever you get your podcasts, YouTube, all that good stuff. Just search The Valley Labor Report. Just a reminder, your support helps us stay on the air. Our largest single source of funding comes directly from our listeners. So if you want to support the program, make a one-time donation, buy a hat, or buy our one remaining Join a Union shirt, then you can go to our website, tvlr.fm, and you can also become a patron at patreon.com slash thevalleylaborreport. If you're a member of a union, then definitely think about getting your local to sponsor the show. Um, one of our sponsors is going to have uh, going to have to drop in the new year. Uh, they're reallocating some funding, so definitely would be helpful to be able to make that up sooner rather than later. So uh, definitely hit us up. Hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, um, wherever you, you know, most, uh, you know, most of y'all who are active in your unions around here probably have have my contact information. So feel free to hit me up if you uh, want any direction. I'm more than happy uh, on any direction on, you know, getting your local to sponsor the show, getting your union to sponsor the show. I am more than happy to come and talk at your local meetings talk uh, about the program, what we do, uh, some of our history, um, and, you know, how we, how we structure the show, how we structure advertisements and, and, you know, what, what kind of, what kind of deals we could work out. So 
Absolutely. And it's not just unions, too. If yes. you belong to an advocacy group or you have a media operation yourself or you are a labor-friendly law firm, uh, any of those type of uh, organizations, definitely hit us up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, a- Adam, you wanted to... Um yeah, you know. since I mentioned uh, law firms, let me add a disclaimer that any viewpoints <laughs> or opinions expressed in this program being solely to belong so low belong solely to their author and do not necessarily represent any organization or sponsor. Uh, my old Unisarv director hat came on as I was viewing this week's outline, and I uh, just thought we might want to put that disclaimer in there from now on. And I do want to announce that uh, we have a survey Jacob and I have been working on, so we hope to get that sent out in the next couple of days. Uh, if you're not already on our email li- list, definitely go to tvlr.fm and get signed up so you can uh, see that survey as soon as it comes out. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so yeah, a- a- any feedback that you have for us, uh, more than more than welcome in that survey. Um, and wanted to start off the show with, you know, we don't have just a lot of prepared thoughts on um, the latest, uh, you know, police murder of civilians, um, Tyree Nichols in Memphis. He was a FedEx driver, you know, brutally murdered by the cops. Uh, and, you know, like I said, I don't have a lot to say about it other than what um you know, we've said before, uh, which is that, you know, police brutality, this kind of stuff is a worker's issue. He, This kind of stuff doesn't happen to wealthy people, doesn't happen to bosses. Um, this kind of stuff happens to working people, to poor people, uh, to homeless folks um, and people on the margins of our society. And uh, so it's, it, it's, in my view, incumbent on the workers' movement to, uh, to be firmly against this and to be for the protection of civilians, the protection of working people uh, against the cops. Um, I don't know. I do not understand how people can see issue after issue, uh, incident after incident like this, and not come to the conclusion that the institution of policing is deeply, deeply flawed in this country, um, and that there are uh, that that we need to that it that we need to scale it back. I mean, the latest big upsurge in uh, protests against police brutality took place in 2020. And so what was the answer to that? The answer to that was, um, where there was an answer at all was increased funding for police. Uh, there was occasionally a few more diversity programs. This obviously didn't work because the five cops that killed Tyree were black. There were some, uh, you know, some trainings and, my understanding is that this these cops were on a post 2020, you know, quote unquote, neighborhood community policing kind of thing. Um, and so that it's obviously not helped um, in this or in so many other occasions. And, you know, people will point and this and in in this case, actually, this is probably one of the only ones that I've seen, because even in even in the Ben Darby case here in Huntsville, the the police unions have been in support of of murderers. 
but this time they have, uh, you know, the the Grand Lodge of the Fraternal Order of Police has saw, seen fit to, you know, cut these people loose. They put out a statement yesterday condemning this, uh, but that's this is basically the only one. The Fraternal Order of Police is still con- uh, defending convicted murderer Ben Darby here in Huntsville, and in every instance, uh, almost universally, that's what they do. That's what the leadership of the police departments do. It's what their management does, and it's what their unions do. Um, and so, I mean, we have to we have to take power away from them. It seems to me that's the only way to address the issue. Um, a statement from AFL-CIO President Liz Schuler and AFL-CIO Secretary Treasurer Fred Redman. Uh, they issued this yesterday. Our hearts break for Tyree Nichols, those who loved him, and a community in pain. In light of his death during a uh, during a violent encounter at the hands of five Memphis police officers during a traffic stop on January 7th, Tyree was a beloved father, son, and friend who was working to build a good life for his for himself and his family. We joined. We join the call in demanding justice for Tyree and remain dedicated to advancing racial justice throughout our nation. Yeah, I just want to echo those sentiments. It's, uh, it's, it's disturbing to see police violence time after time after time. In this case, they have all been charged with murder. Uh, but as you pointed out, that's typically not the response. Uh, and the sad thing is we've had this police violence on top of mass shootings and mm. we've, we've had, you know, just so many mass shootings already. We're barely one month into the school, the new year. And, uh, you know, it's just, I think symptoms of, of a profoundly sick society. And that's something that, you know, I hear a lot of folks agree with, frankly, across the political spectrum, liberals, conservatives, radicals. I think most of us recognize there's something deeply, deeply wrong in this country, uh, in a country where police can routinely beat and murder civilians and where civilians don't feel safe at work or at recreation or even at home from the threats of violence and mass shootings. And on that note, I wanted to, uh, to lift up a statement from the United Farm Workers who experienced the loss of several of their members in one of the multiple mass shootings that just took place in California. And quoting from the UFW, in response to the reported killings of seven farm workers and the wounding of several more in the Half Moon Bay, California area, the UFW issued the following statement. The mass shooting spree that has left seven farm workers dead in California leaves us heartbroken, angry, and demanding answers. As we wait for more news, the entire UFW mourns the loss of seven farm workers. While we did not know them, they were part of the too often invisible, yet often, yet always essential agricultural workforce that feeds America and the world. As farm workers and as human beings, they deserve far better. We dream of a nation in which all farm workers, regardless of their ethnicity or national origin, are treated with dignity in which our streets no longer bear bloodshed after bloodshed, and in which our hearts have a moment to heal in between breaking. Yeah, that's a good statement. That's a good statement. Um, with that, we'll go ahead and get to our uh, the first segment, uh, or the, 
you know, the segment that we normally start off the show with. Uh, that's Last Week in Southern Labor. That's a segment that we do every week, uh, mostly, where we tell you what happened in the labor movement in the South. Uh, we pull the information from Jonah Furman's newsletter, Who Gets the Bird, which compiles all this information for the entire United States. Uh, so if you want to see what's going on outside of the South, then subscribe to that newsletter. You can do that at whogetsthebird.substack.com. Uh, before we jump into that, I wanted to mention that for Jacobin, Jonah actually wrote about the latest Bureau of Labor Statistics report on union membership in the United States in the last year. Uh, the big picture, the 20-year 20 uh, 20 view of where we're at, so definitely check that out. Jonah's uh, review in Jacobin, as well as friend of the show Connor Lewis's review in In These Times, are both, uh, I think, very crucial in in understanding where we're at and where to go from here. With that, let's jump into new organizing for the week of January 15th to January 22nd. Pretty slow, but we did have 73 workers at Creature Comforts Brewery in Athens, Georgia, launching the Independent Brewery Union of Georgia. Very cool. Uh, we had several wins and losses, though. In a mixed result, SEIU Texas won one, and lost one election among two units of workers at Tenet's Hospitals of Providence, the Sierra Campus in El Paso, Texas, 242 service maintenance and techs voted 67 to 7 to join the union, while 63 professional employees voted uh, 3 to 8 not to. 77 workers who make polymerization chemicals for Neuron in Laporte, Texas, voted 40 to 36 to unionize with the United Steelworkers. 19 dancers at the Memphis Ballet have voted to join AGMA, though the NLRB site hasn't updated with a count. 14 bus drivers for DS Bus Lines in Amarillo, Texas, voted 8 to 4 to join Teamsters Local 577. 13 subcontracted Border Patrol mechanics in Harling, uh, in Harlingen, Texas, voted 8-0 to zero to join Machinist Local 2949. Nine subcontracted workers at a D.C. wastewater treatment plant voted 3-6 to six against joining Operating Engineers Local 99. 34 Starbucks workers at two locations, including in Flower Mound, Texas, voted 24-8 to eight to join Starbucks Workers United, while in a rerun of a loss... 25 more Starbucks workers in Lafayette, Louisiana, voted again not to, 10 to 10. Teachers in Prince William County, Virginia, are voting on formal unionization, having won a local collective bargaining ordinance. In strike and bargaining updates, the UMWA strike at Warrior Met in Brookwood, Alabama, far and away remains the longest-running active strike in the country, which has now entered its third calendar year and is coming up on two full years. Around 100 maintenance workers with the Machinists Local 56 are on strike at Muller Company in Chattanooga, Tennessee, which produces water valves. Sounds like this is primarily a fight over working hours, specifically about the company attempting to limit overtime. It's also the union's first strike at the plant since 1976. Jeff Shirk at In These Times looked at how rail workers are keeping up the fight for sick leave after being shut down by the U.S. Congress and President Joe Biden. On a couple of smaller carriers, rail workers with the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen and the IBEW ratified new contracts. 
In uh, politics and legislation, a federal court upheld a 2019 ruling that blocked some Trump-era NLRB efforts to make union elections take longer, which benefits the employer. There were some administrative items that survive, uh, that survived, but on the whole, it seems like minor good news for workers trying to organize through the NLRB. With that, we're going to go ahead and head to a break. On the other side, we are talking to Jacqueline Simon, Policy Director of the American Federation of Government Employees, about the Show Up Act, targeting federal workers' ability to telework. We'll be right back. Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern Worker Movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. IBW558 is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice. Energy Alabama is a locally operated and membership-based nonprofit organization focused on advancing Alabama's clean energy future through education and advocacy. Many people in charge of infrastructure and building decisions simply don't know about how viable clean and renewable energy is. To that end, Energy Alabama has provided instruction to more than thousands of adults and tens of thousands of K-12 students across the state. We're working hard to build careers in clean energy and help everyday Alabamians save money on their utility bills. Learn more about our work and how you can join us at energyalabama.org. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org. Attention union members, membership organizations, podcasters, or anyone with a payment processing need. The future is here, and your organization needs to be prepared by working with Unionly. With Unionly, your union or organization can take payments on a mobile device, eliminating processing fees, giving you a better price than other payment processing methods, while at the same time supporting a union-friendly business with a specialized skill set to meet your needs. Your members will thank you when they pay their dues at their convenience without waiting in line to deposit cash or check. 
Start preparing for the future today by calling 206-595-8631 or visiting unionly.io. Are you looking for a better future, a career that can have you set for life, and to be a part of something that's bigger than yourself? If you are, then consider a skilled trades apprenticeship with the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades. The work of IUPAT is all around us, from the industrial painters who work on the bridges to drywall finishers, floor coverers, the glazers who install the glass in our skylines, and so much more. With an IUPAT apprenticeship, you earn while you learn and receive benefits while learning the trade, including a pension. We provide world-class education free of charge. That's right, no student debt. Our starting salaries for apprentices that graduate is above the national median salary with benefits for entire families. And you have the flexibility to take your trade wherever you'd like in the country to work. IUPAT District Council 77 covers our entire region, so give Adam Booth a call at 205-603-3142 for more information. Again, that phone number is 205-603-3142. Come build a better future with us today and join IUPAT. Labor creates all wealth. All wealth should go to labor. And you are listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morris and my co-host is Adam Keller. If you've got anything to add, you can give us a call or send us a text. That phone number is 844-899-TVLR. I do see that we've got a caller on the line and we will get to you just as soon as we finish with our first guest, who is Jacqueline Simon. She is the policy director for the American Federation of Government Employees, representing 700,000 federal workers, and she is our first guest this morning. Jacqueline, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. I appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. Pleasure. So uh, we wanted to talk to somebody from AFGE about the Show Up Act. This uh, Now, you know, it hasn't gotten just a whole lot of media attention, I think partly because it, it's obvious that this isn't going to pass. You know, there's no way that this is going to make it through the Senate because it's it's a really, um, you know, it, it, it's a really anti-worker piece of legislation. It's also just anti-efficiency. It's it is it, it very obviously would not be good for the administration of the federal service, if you know anything about the way that it works. Uh, but you know, before we before we get you know too much into analysis of of what it would do, what is the Show Up Act? Well, I'll tell you uh, specifically what the Show Up Act is, and um, sort of try to provide a context for it. I, I would just also like to say um, one thing we've learned through bitter experience at AFGE is never to assume uh, that something extreme like this uh, has no chance of passing. Mm. Uh, you never know. Um, uh, politicians have a way of stabbing federal employees in the back when it's uh, expedient. And uh, you never know when this might get added to something um, because uh, people don't really care about the consequences to, to federal workers. Um, so we take it very seriously. That's my way of taking saying that we take the, the legislation very seriously because uh, we have to. Um, uh you never, never underestimate the people who uh, try to make life miserable for federal employees. That's a good point. Um, which, yeah, and 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 it's in that context we should talk about this bill. 
Um, you know, this is this is an early piece of legislation from um, a committee that's clearly uh, intent on uh, trying to disrupt the operation of the federal government, um, undermine certainly uh, federal employee unions and union rights, and and do everything they can to attack federal employees as you know lazy, overpaid, worthless bureaucrats. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's in that context that this is, you know, sort of a, an early volley from this committee. There are going to be a lot of uh, terrible bills from them. And this one basically requires uh, federal agencies to uh, go back to pre-pandemic policies on remote work and, and telework. Uh, pretend that the pandemic never happened. Pretend that, you know, no lessons were learned whatsoever from the pandemic in terms of, uh, you know, the the uh benefits of telework uh, to a certain segment of the federal workforce. Um, of course, it, it certainly bypasses the collective bargaining process because in the intervening years, um, several agencies have uh, negotiated uh, new collective bargaining agreements. Certainly post-Trump, we've coll- uh, negotiated collective bargaining agreements that expand telework. It's an acknowledgement by agency management for by no means pro-union in any any. Uh, sense of that term, but they've recognized that uh, from the perspective of their own, you know, responsibilities for carrying out the mission of their agency, the telework has been a, a boon. It it uh, helps with recruitment and retention. Uh, people are more productive, measurably. Uh, they're more engaged, and um, you know, the agency saves some money. So uh, there are many, many positive aspects of of the increase in telework, and then. This doesn't shouldn't need saying, but it also pretends that the pandemic is over. Mm. And the pandemic is definitely not over. There are a lot of people who are either immunocompromised themselves or live with people who are who have have disabilities that make uh, the prospect of a COVID infection uh, possibly deadly. And um, there's you know health and safety issues at the workplace are extremely important and. You know, going back to pre-pandemic everything, which is what this Show Up Act uh, envisions, um, just absolutely ignores any kind of, uh, you know, health and safety concerns that the federal workforce have of going back to, you know, crowded uh, buildings that are full of, you know, open open uh, cubicles mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, everybody's coughing on everybody else and, and there, there's no infrastructure in place to, to truly help people protect themselves from uh, COVID infection and other infections. Right. And and the Show Up Act, it's a um, it is an acronym for Stomping Home Office Works Unproductive Problems Act of 2022. Uh, the sponsor is Representative Yvette Harrell, a Republican from New Mexico. And it's worth noting that in their in their announcement on the background of this, in all of their statements on this that I've seen, they vaguely are able, they're vaguely pointing to this or that problem, but they have no actual evidence. They have no, you know, they talk about, um, they talk about a lack of productivity. Well, if there's a lack of productivity, show it to us. Give us the numbers. What is, how are you measuring this? What, what is the actual detriment that you are seeing that you're claiming to see, right? And they don't have it. They don't have anything. Well, of course not. But again, uh, the productivity and effectiveness of, of government agencies is the last uh, priority for this right. group of people. 
Um, remember, these are the same people who are so cavalier about the prospect of uh, defaulting on the uh, mm. uh, the national debt. Um, these are people who are, you know, have on numerous occasions over the last uh, year, several years, shut down the government without any concern whatsoever about its impact, not only on federal employees, of course, but on the on the public at large that depend on the service of services of federal agencies. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't care about productivity. They care about disruption, chaos, uh, and, and imposing harm on workers. And it also pretends that there are no mechanisms for management to work towards a resolution where there are issues. Because in our CBA, <clears throat> there are mechanisms for like if there if for some reason there is theoretically a worker an individual worker who is having issues being productive at home there are mechanisms for management to roll that back and that's going to be the same way in any CBA in any agreement where we're expanding telework there are going to be disciplinary actions that management can take and so if they want you know if these problems exist it would only be because management is allowing, you know, the, <laughs> this issue to happen. It wouldn't be because of the workers. Um, well, that's of course, that's absolutely true. Um, you know, one of their other favorite uh, uh, themes is, you know, the, the poor performer and how impossible and difficult it is to get rid of a poor performer in, um, in a federal agency. And of course, that's always a management failure. There are right. plenty of uh, there's plenty of authority and uh, tools and opportunity for for federal managers and supervisors to hold uh, employees accountable for for doing their work. You know, unfortunately, these poor performers are just evidence of of the lack of accountability for management. But, um, you know, another issue that, you know, we're having to deal with constantly, certainly here in Washington, D.C., is uh, sort of a steady drumbeat by the Washington Post and other um, sort of uh, mainstream newspapers uh, complaining that the federal workforce uh, isn't doing its uh, its job of providing um, customers to to downtown businesses. Mm. Now, of course, you know the the Washington metropolitan area does have a large concentration of federal employees, but only fifteen percent of the overall federal workforce works in the in in the Washington area. And also, just uh, in terms of you know facts and figures, um, over half of the federal workforce um, never worked anywhere except their regular duty right. station, even in the most dangerous moments of the of the pandemic. You know, we're talking law enforcement, border patrol agents, corrections officers in, in, in federal prisons, um, civilian DOD workers who had to still show up at, you know, military depots, uh, people who work in veteran VA hospitals, mm-hmm. uh, cemeteries, uh, you know, uh, clinics. Um, they that group makes up more than half of the overall federal workforce and all of them showed tremendous bravery and dedication and uh, perseverance throughout the pandemic. They were often, uh, you know, left without personal protective gear. It was very scarce. If you recall during the early uh, stages of the pandemic, back when there was no vaccine, there was no good treatment. Um, hospitals were overflowing. Uh, you know, who knew if you could get a, a bed in a hospital if you did get infected? And they still showed up at their regular duty station and put themselves at risk every day. I forgot to mention transportation security officers at airports. Um, you know, a very large portion of the federal workforce. Uh, Commissary workers. Yeah, there's all just, sorts of Yeah, they, 
Right. They don't have the kind of job. Exactly. They're you know, like grocery store workers. They they uh, the, the workers who who were able to perform their duties uh, remotely. I mean, I want to say they were no less heroic. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they had kids at home, uh, you know, trying to get either young kids who were out of uh, out of daycare or school age kids who, you know, they are trying to have make sure that they actually looked at their screen all day or, you know, continued to get to school or, or activities or just dealt with their boredom or, you know, stir craziness. Um, other family members who were, uh, you know, confined to the house because of, you know, fears of the consequences of infection, you know, if they were in a category that for whom, you know, a COVID infection was a death sentence. And they managed to log on every day and mm-hmm. and still perform their duties, still get the work done, still provide services to the American public. They were just as heroic. And this bill is a a slap in the face to to all of us. And that I mean, regardless of the category of worker, um, I think that federal employees ought to be celebrated for the absolutely tremendous uh, work they've done throughout the pandemic. And I don't personally consider the pandemic to be over. And the, um, you know, well, and, and one more thing about, and this, this ties into, you know, the, uh, the efficient administration of the federal service, which, you know, we, we understand that, that these people are not concerned with, but uh, just one more thing to, to point out is that if the federal government unilaterally as an employer rolled back telework, that is going to severely hamper our ability to compete and attract talent because so many of so many jobs that can be done from home their employers including the federal government are giving them the flexibility to do that if workers want to and so if i as a worker have an offer from a federal uh, for a federal job where I'm going to make less money. You know, I'm going to have all these other things, and, and I mean, severely a lot less money. I think on average it's like twenty percent less than I would in the private sector. And now you're going to tell me that in addition to that, I'm not going to be able to telework like I could in the private sector. And so it's just uh, uh, it, it's just one it would that would be one more way. My agency is already having trouble attracting talent just because we don't offer very often remote work. We offer telework. We offer telework three days a week, but a lot of places, a lot of people that we're trying to hire, are going to places where they can work remotely year round from a different state, right? And so like just that is making it difficult for us to compete. I couldn't imagine what would happen if the, you know, talk about bureaucrats who who aren't actually doing, you know, these people far removed from my workplace in DC tell us that our agency does no, no longer has the ability to authorize telework. Well, I think that last point you make is, is really, uh, not can't be can't be made enough, and that is, um, you know, on the one hand, some of these ideologues are all about uh, management flexibility and all power to management. Management knows best, um, but you know, the reality is that management uh, has negotiated uh, telework policies. Managers like telework too <laughs> for right. themselves, not just for the people they they uh, supervise, and they have. Uh, they have negotiated these agreements. They have uh, used them successfully for for many years. 
for many years prior to the pandemic. And and now uh, politicians in Washington are unilateral telling them we don't really care what you want. We don't care what you're, you know, you judge to be uh, in the best interests of of your agency or your program. We know better. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're sitting here in Washington, D.C., and we can uh, tell you what to do. And what we're telling you to do is is unilaterally turn back the clock and, and pretend that pandemic didn't happen and. And is therefore over, I guess. But yes, that's a that's a really good point. I'm also glad you uh, raised the whole issue of the pay gap between federal employees and 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 people who do similar jobs in the private sector and and state and local government. Uh, You know, the most recent data from the Federal Salary Council, which is based on Bureau of Labor Statistics data, um, has an average overall gap across the country, uh, you know, a little over 23 percent. Um, we just had legislation introduced in both the House and the Senate this week to uh, provide an 8.7% pay increase for federal employees for 2024, which, of course, is not enough, but it's still a lot more than um, what federal employees have uh, gotten in the last several years, um, really decades. And, um, you know, we've got a generational turnover in the federal workforce uh, happening as we speak. And it's happening, you know, of course, it all, it all, businesses and and governments. And, you know, as the baby boomers retire, uh, you know, there is competition for for a lot of different kinds of skills. And and in that, we got to include um, people in the skilled trades. You know, my union represents hourly workers uh, who who are uh, in very high demand. And the federal government has a terrible time trying to recruit and retain people with with the kind of skills to work on, you know, nuclear submarines and mm-hmm. um, mil- electronic mm-hmm. uh, weapon systems, and and uh, you know, keep the building operating in a in a VA hospital or a prison, and you know, they got a pay gap there. We got a pay gap for for white collar workers who are paid salaries. Um, some in some locations, that pay gap is is fifty percent, right, and um, so. You know, one of the things that's happening uh, in order to sort of avoid dealing with the pay gap, um, and now maybe, uh, God forbid, this huge gap in terms of working conditions about whether or not people can telework or or work remotely, um, you know, what they want to do is kind of get away from the competitive system of the civil service and, and allow agencies to just hire on the spot and hire whoever they want to without uh, requiring the the job applicants to either compete against one another because they make sure we get the best person, or you know give veterans a, a leg up, or uh, or any kind of uh, transparent competitive system. They want accepted service and and non competitive hiring. And you know if if the tr- the Trump era taught us anything, it's how susceptible our civil service is to corruption. Mm. Um, and uh, this is just one one more nail in the coffin, really, because as you point out, uh, it will make recruitment and retention a lot more difficult. Yeah. Jacqueline Simon, Policy Director for the American Federation of Government Employees. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Yeah. Bye. Uh, Adam, we've still got that caller on the line, right? Uh, Yes, we should. I believe it is uh, Jack from New Jersey. Want me to go ahead and put him on the line? Yeah, let's bring him on the line. Jack from New Jersey? Hey, man, doing good. How are you? What uh, what you got on your mind? 
I, I wanted to call in with a couple comments from last week. And sorry if I'm out of breath. I'm walking to North Jersey DSA's chapter convention right now. Okay, very cool. Very cool. But first, that uh, last week in Southern Labor up front, I definitely appreciate that. Good to get a weekly reminder that uh, that Southern tradition of worker organizing is still alive and well. And my other comment was the segment last week, the interview with uh, Larissa Petrucci about uh, about prevailing wage. Mm. Thank you for that. I worked in the office for uh, for a small non-union subcontractor, and those prevailing wage jobs, those were what got the installers like enough to live on. And uh, yeah, it's bad enough. Bad enough the way the, the way some of some of the construction workers get treated. Don't come to their body too. Right, right. Yeah, I, I think that you know the destruction of prevailing wage is is a really important issue for for folks to understand and, and folks understand the benefits of it where they where they still have it for sure. As far as I know, it's not under attack here in New Jersey, and I'm thankful for that. But. Well, yeah, make you gotta gotta make sure that y'all keep it that way up there. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, oh, oh! I know. All right. Well, thanks for. Do what? Yeah. Oh, I was gonna say. Now, now I gotta go back and uh, go back to YouTube and listen to that segment on Show Up because online only played your side. All right. <laughs> well, thanks for calling in, Jack. Right. We really appreciate thanks, it, and uh, good luck at the convention. I hope y'all have yeah. a good, successful meeting. You too. Appreciate it. Um, I wanted to mention really quickly uh, the Case New Holland strike, uh, because we've talked about it before with Mel Buer, who's been doing a lot of reporting uh, for it, of um, uh, who's been doing a lot of, of reporting on it for the Real News Network. Yes. Um, it lasted about eight months, and now the 1,100-member Case New Holland strike is over. With members of the two striking locals, the UAW Local 180 in Racine, Wisconsin, and Local 807 in Burlington, Iowa, uh, voting by 62% to accept the deal. Um, haven't seen the details yet. Uh, pulling some of this from Jonah's newsletter, um, I did a little bit of reading this morning and wasn't able to find any 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 real you know detailed analysis of it. But uh, workers rejected a deal by fifty five to forty five percent two weeks ago uh, that reportedly provided for twenty eight percent wages but kept some health care concessions. Um, so presumably. There are at least some tweaks to this offer that swung those 17 percentage points. Um, And part of that tweak, unfortunately, may have been the company's threat to hire 220 permanent replacement workers, which they announced soon before the vote. Um, Now, correct me if I'm wrong. We've talked a little bit about the PRO Act here on the show. Uh, My understanding is that under the PRO Act, were that to become law, you a company could not do what they threatened to do uh, by bringing in permanent replacement workers for the striking workers. Uh, is that was that your read on it as well? I 
It's been yes, a while. Yes, it, it has does. been it's a while. Been, it's been a long time. I just Googled it while you were mentioning that. But yes, the PRO Act does prohibit employers from permanently replacing striking workers. Uh, it bans the use of offensive lockouts and removes prohibitions on secondary activities is some of those things, is some of the things that the PRO Act does as it relates to strikes. Uh, but yeah, that's, you know, and, and the whole ability, it really should, frankly, we shouldn't need another law to... Um, ban permanent replacements because the only reason that employers are able to quote unquote permanently replace striking workers is because of an absurd interpretation of the NLRA prohibition on uh, firing workers for striking. The law already prohibits you as an employer, it is illegal for you to fire an employee for striking. That is illegal. And it has been illegal for uh, nearly a hundred years. But because of some radical, you know, activist judge, uh, activist pro-boss judge, they interpreted this law in some bizarre way to allow bosses to permanently replace an employee, which is somehow different than being mechanically fired. than being fired. Right. It's so absurd. It's absurd. And if we had a judiciary that was actually committed to just, you know, an originalist understanding of the NLRA or, or, or labor law in this country, they would not be able to already. It would it would be illegal to permanently replace employees because what is it? what does it mean when you permanently replace an employee? That means they're fired. That means they do not have a job to go back to. And so how is that different? How is that different from if somebody, you know, we have a prohibition on firing striking workers. And so somehow it's illegal for you to go up and say you're fired, but it's not illegal for you to go up and say you don't have a job anymore. It's just absurd. It's it's the yeah. stupidest, most, you know, it, it's just ridiculous. It is, yeah. And I think, you know, there again, we see where labor law as inefficient and insufficient as it is in this country, even what's on the books is not properly uh, interpreted or properly uh, uh, enforced. Right. Because I think the other piece to that is when a company gets to the point that they're bringing in permanent replacement workers, you got a pretty clear sign that they've been bargaining in bad faith. Yeah. In right. my opinion. Uh, and I think that's also another trend where these companies, they act in bad faith. Uh, they have no real desire to negotiate in good faith. Uh, but they're confident that the government will allow them to get away with it. Uh, think right. about Warrior Met Coal. I mean, does anyone really think here, uh, what, 20 months deep, over 20 months deep into the strike, that Warrior Met Coal was acting in good faith? Did they really want to settle the strike? You know, it's it's absurd. Uh, so I haven't followed the case New Holland strike very closely with it being in Iowa and, you know, that kind of outside of our neck of the woods. But uh, I'm certainly happy to see this strike come to a, an end. I hope that it was a successful contract win for these 1,100 members. Uh, just want to send my, my love and solidarity to the UAW members out there for fighting the good fight. Absolutely. Uh, you got an update for us on uh, domestic workers, right, Adam? Yeah, I'd uh, like to just chip in with updates here and there from different industries as we get them. Uh, 
I uh, did get some updates from the Domestic Workers Alliance. And, of course, we know that domestic workers have long played an important role in our society and have long been among the most exploited workers in the country. Domestic workers are disproportionately women of color, often immigrants. A recent survey of Spanish-speaking domestic workers shed some light on their current conditions. 70% of those surveyed said they wanted to work more hours. 40% of respondents faced housing insecurity, and nearly 80% experienced food insecurity in the fourth quarter of 2022. So things are really tough for domestic workers in this country. But we do have some good news out of the National Domestic Workers Alliance to pass along. Uh, and it's always nice, as a labor show, to get a little bit of good news, uh, considering the daunting odds we, we face day in and day out in this challenge. So, quote, on December 20th, Washington, D.C. officially became the 13th city or state in the country to pass a domestic workers bill of rights. This is huge for the domestic worker movement in D.C. and across the country. Over four years ago, in 2018, domestic workers in the newly formed D.C. chapter of NDWA began organizing to end the exclusion of domestic workers from D.C.'s Human Rights Act, the only group of workers to be excluded from this right in D.C. The D.C. Domestic Workers' Bill of Rights passed the D.C. Council unanimously. The bill finally includes domestic workers and D.C.'s human rights protections, which guaranteed protections against discrimination at work. It also includes domestic workers in D.C.'s occupational health and safety law. It will create the new right for domestic workers who work in D.C. to have a written contract with their employers, and it will create a domestic worker outreach and education program to give community-based organizations money to help domestic workers know their rights and enforce their rights. This bill is an unprecedented recognition in D.C. of the value and dignity of work that domestic workers do. So, wanted to pass along that statement from the NWDA. Uh, love to see some good news. Glad to see this. I hope there are many more victories like this in the future. Uh, I know that NWDA is fighting for a National Domestic Worker Bill of Rights at the federal level. They won a historic congressional hearing this past year. They're pushing hard to pass it at the federal level, but as we've already discussed today in reference to federal employees... Uh, Congress is not very worker-friendly these days, uh, if they ever were. Uh, so wins like this at the local and state level are, are really important. They're small but positive steps in the right direction. So love and solidarity to our brothers and sisters working in the domestic work industry uh, and to the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Uh, good work. Absolutely. That's great news. Love to get great news. Um, and even if, even if the horizon is, is hopefully going to be better than, uh, than the good news, but, uh, better, uh, better to see things improve than to stay the same or get worse. That's for sure. Uh, with that, we're going to go ahead and go to a break really quick. On the other side, uh, we're going to be doing a, a new regular segment where um, we're going to be getting city council updates from some local city council watchers. Uh, really excited about starting this. Um, I think it'll be helpful. Um, and and despite uh, d despite some, you know, uh, you know, maybe your initial inclination is city council watcher updates from the city council. That's so boring. Um, I think maybe there are reasons to uh, that that 
will not be the case. <laughs> Having so, attended hundreds of government meetings, um, there are a lot of things, but often not very boring. Yes. Uh, sometimes it's better than entertainment than what's on TV. Right. Yep. So with that, we'll be right back. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Valley Labor Report. Energy Alabama supports consumers and is a leader in advocating for them. We have been able to successfully fight off utility rate increases in the state, reduce fees for electric vehicles, increase electric vehicle infrastructure spending, and secured a $100 million refund by Alabama Power after the utility overcharged customers for fuel. To learn more about our work advocating for customers and join the fight, go to energyalabama.org. There's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers, but that's not the case with IBW558. We have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year. With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW558.org. North Alabama DSA is looking for folks to work for a better North Alabama. They prioritize mutual aid, municipal activism, and union solidarity. Contact them on social media or dsanorthalabama at gmail for more information. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at IAMAW44.org. Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern Worker Movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. Support for this program also comes from the Iron Workers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need iron workers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Iron Workers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. 
We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. Alabama's only union talk radio show. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. We are going to be starting up a new regular segment. Um, and this this uh, part of the show is probably going to be expanding. But uh, we're going to be starting off uh, Day with Tristan Gilbert, uh, and we're going to be reviewing what's been going on at the Madison City Council meetings. Um, we're working on getting somebody lined up to give us regular updates about the Huntsville City Council. Um, and if anybody out there is interested and um, and currently watches or is maybe interested in, in beginning to watch the Decatur and Athens City Council meetings, uh, we would we'd love to be able to get um, get regular updates from those four cities uh, for, uh, uh, on the show. So you know, if you're already if you're already doing that, particularly if you're already doing that, then definitely hit up the show. Uh, or if you know if you want to do that and um, and you know. Uh, work with us on on getting those updates out there then uh you know feel free to reach out right i mean even if you don't feel comfortable appearing on live radio or you know on video mm-hmm. understand that uh but if you are already attending your local city council meetings or you know other government agencies for that matter school board or mm-hmm. county commission if you're already there and you're taking notes and kind of uh passing those notes along to yes whoever it may be, your friends, your neighbors, your, you know, county party, whatever, whatever it may be, hit us up, uh, see if there's a way we can collaborate and we can put your information out there and of course give you credit for that and and Mm -hmm. help pass that information along to inform the community. Yep. Yep. So like I said, Tristan Gilbert, he's our next guest. He is a city council watcher. He's been watching, uh, the Madison city council for a while now. And, uh, and so, yeah, what, you know, since he's doing that already figured, why don't we, uh, bring him on the show to talk about it? So Tristan, thanks for, uh, coming on the show. Hi, Jacob. I appreciate you having me on to talk about, uh, what's been going down in Madison. Um, hopefully it'll be entertaining for your listeners. It's not been bad for me. Um, would you like me to start with my overall themes? Yeah, go ahead. And, and so, you know, we figured because this is the first time that, that we're, we're going to be doing this, you know, it, it'll maybe be a little bit more succinct in future months, but, but we figured it might be worth having just an overview of what's been going on the last three months and we can dig into a couple of the issues. But, uh, but yeah, so what, what are, what have been the big themes at the Madison City Council meetings over the last few months? 
So the three big things that have been going on since November are currently, uh, for number one, Madison is considering transitioning to a city manager uh, form of government. It's currently a uh, council to mayor form of government where the council is the sort of legislative branch and the mayor handles the executive work, the day-to-day operations. Uh, If they switch to a city manager branch, the mayor will become instead a member of the council, sort of the seventh at-large member voted on by the whole city, uh, so not per district. And instead of him doing day-to-day things, the entire council would then elect a city manager or hire a city manager. Uh, Theoretically, this is somebody who would have credentials in local government uh, and somebody who would stay on as a steady uh, sort of a steady bureaucratic hand throughout multiple uh, administrations. Um, and uh, those two forms of government, both uh, mayor to council and council to manager, are uh, pretty common throughout the country. There's a couple of others, but those are the two big ones. And I, um, I personally don't uh, see uh, a huge number of changes uh, coming if they implement that. Um, I'm not really, I usually try to gauge a government's form's value by like how democratic it is. And I kind of see pros and cons to both. But um, there are some people who are regular commenters uh, at the meetings who uh, are a little more impassioned about their opinions, uh, particularly for or against that, um, that change. So I'm interested to see where it goes. I know the main spearheading group behind uh, pushing for a city manager form of government uh, is a group called Madison Forward. They have a .org you can look them at, you can look them up at if anybody's interested to know more about that. Uh, and later on, or whenever you want to run it, I did have a clip from somebody who uh, appeared to speak about that. Uh, but do you have any questions on that theme before we move on? Yeah, yeah. Well, let, let's actually, uh, Adam, I, I want to go ahead and, and play that clip, actually, because it does seem, it, it seems kind of, you know, this this particular thing, like you mentioned, I don't, I don't really have a strong opinion about it. I would be interested, after we play this clip, I'd be interested in Madison Forward's argument for it and, and maybe some of the more some of the less bombastic arguments against it. Uh, but, but Adam, let's play this from Margie. Okay, I think I know exactly which one you've labeled it. Yes. (laughs) Margie Daly, Karen's District. City manager. Monarchy. Dictatorship. Might as well go back to British rule. A group think type government. A green giant of power grabs. Plausible deniability silences the voices of we the people. Zero public input even less transparency. Madison forward petition signatures were collected under less than honest, truthful means. Deceptive, nefarious at best. We will not be anything like Auburn, Vestivia Hills, or Mountain Brook. They've had that for decades, the 1960s and the 1980s. The new law updates bring us a socialist groupthink structure. We won't give up our constitutional rights and choose to implement the corporate board with as few as five people to run our city. I believe many voters moved here to get away from crime, regulations, multiple-level dwellings, needle exchanges, high taxes, lobbyists, 
big government, etc. Taking our constitutional rights, eliminating separation of powers, eliminating the executive branch of government, eliminating our votes on the person who runs our city in perpetuity. You took our lighting on the main roads in the older neighborhoods. Ordinance to no longer prosecute small crimes, opioid settlement for a needle exchange. Our city has enough intellectually competent citizens. They can look up what a city manager is online. This government type is failing all over our nation. Corruption in most cases. It's used globally sponsored by the Rockefeller Foundation. City manager is globalists. Venezuela, Cuba, Russia, China, etc. Madison needs updated infrastructure and road repairs, giving us only piecemeal while developers, ball corps, MVP, receive all our tax dollars. We need road improvements, traffic lights, lights water and sewerage is insufficient. There's about 15 supposed grassroots nonprofit, yet they consist of the same 10 people. You have no clue how to treat your constituents and build a secure, safe city. We must not allow you to steal our government structure by deception. Install a selected individual. Deny our right to choose an elected by the people mayor. Vote no city manager. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Staley. All right, so there was... Ooh, that was a lot. That was a lot there, but I think the first thing that, that just has to be mentioned is that she's a Yankee. I mean, I, I mean, right? Like, that's the first thing. I did wonder where that accent came from. I couldn't quite place it. <laughs> she, and I ain't from around here, that's for sure. <laughs> that's, that's... To commend her, though, on sticking to her three-minute window to speak, uh, there's a lot she of people lot. that, uh, that go over that minutes. as a yeah. habit. Uh, she's very practiced. I believe she's there every week. Uh, what a character. Yeah. So does the city manager proposal include, like, include directives for the city manager to institute needle exchanges, more multi-level housing and socialism? And, I mean, is that in the proposal? Uh, uh, not as far as I'm aware. Uh, <laughs> maybe my research is lacking there. Uh, okay. I do have uh, Madison Forward's website pulled up. Uh, I'm still learning some of this myself, but I can read some of their some of their bullet points. Uh, do you happen bef before you get to that? Do you happen to see uh, China, Cuba, Venezuela? Uh, you know, are there fingerprints on this? Oh, there it is in the fine print. It's way at the bottom of the note. Uh, see, that's how they get you. They <laughs> yeah, yeah. They... <laughs> I, I thought there was a little hammer and sickle down there at the bottom of the website. That's those damn globalists. <laughs> right. I thought this was a very local issue. Um, but uh, yeah, so looking at uh, Madison Forward's website, they have uh, they have some drop downs. Uh, probably the most relevant one for us is who benefits from a from a council manager form of government. In their words, I say Madison residents, because they gain continuity and accountability in city government, as well as increased transparency. Um, not sure I agree with that one, but moving on, their right. uh, Madison, Madison City school system benefits because it can engage in a more long term strategic planning with the city and reap the benefits of a stronger economy. Uh, Madison City Hall, because a trained certified professional runs the day to day operations of the city, freeing up the mayor to advocate more for Madison and Montgomery and beyond. 
and city employees because they're hired based on their education and experience, not on political patronage. Um, I think that the the points two through four have some uh, have some weight behind them. The, the The entire idea is that it creates some continuity mm-hmm. um, in who is running the day to day operations of the city. I actually. On the first one where they gain a, a layer of accountability and transparency, I'm not really sure. Uh, Margie might yeah. have a point on that one. I, I would push back on that as yeah, well. Yeah, that, that I, seems dubious. Yeah, I, I think when you, you're but talking the, about an unelected executive right. running the day-to-day operations of the city, um, I find that hard to believe that somehow there's more accountability involved. I, mm-hmm. to, you know, to your point, I, I see what they're saying with the other bits of rationale. Um, you know, I'm not so sure I agree or disagree one way or the other, but I see what they're saying. But the first, yeah. and you know, there is there's definitely there's definitely an argument that that Margie has. You know, the 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 Cuba bit aside, you know, there's there's right. Yeah, I know, mean, okay, obviously, Miss Margie uh, is is a confused woman if she right. believes that the Rockefellers, right. Venezuela, China are interested Cuba, in Madison City uh, uh, municipal government, right? Effects. And and that somehow they're all on the same side, and also right. that socialism promotes corporate board management um um anyway but yeah so that's interesting though about the um the civil service in madison is there not already some sort of like is that how municipal employees in madison are picked is like every time there's a new mayor elected they just they throw out the old everybody and there's no like regular civil service I doubt that they throw out everybody and do mass layoffs or firings. But what I do think is that uh, one one benefit of the manager is that they would be elected by the entire board, which would include mm-hmm. the mayor. So the mayor is somebody that every resident gets a vote on, and then they each have their district representatives as well. So it's not mm-hmm. a complete lack of transparency, and I can see the benefits from it. They were talking uh, in some of the meetings about – how currently the people that handle the day-to-day operations are just chosen like at, uh, at the pleasure of the mayor, whoever that is, but it was the mayor himself making that claim. So maybe there's a beef with a previous mayor that I am not aware of. Um, I've only been living in Madison for a couple of years now. Uh, mm-hmm. and I'm technically not in one of these districts. So I, uh, I'm right outside it in this strange Huntsville district that wraps around the entirety of Madison. The, uh, the map is entertaining. Uh-huh. Um, but it, sure. maybe it lends me some objectivity. I can listen in without, uh, rippling the water too much. Right. You right. could say, um, yeah, before we, before we go on to the next point, uh, we had a, um, free American 2020 in the chat said that, uh, she left out that, uh, having a city manager will promote abortion and kick kittens. Um, so, you know, th- those are, these are important, um, important uh, things to note. Uh, so the next issue from the uh, hunt, uh, from the Madison City Council meeting is this community center. Talk to us. What, what's going on there? Yeah. So I in my research, it looks like they they've had this uh, senior center up on Hughes for several years, which is falling into disrepair and otherwise uh, performs a pretty vital service for the community. So for the last two years, they've been planning to replace it with a community center. Uh, This will be built on the bones of another existing building uh, to save costs, Um, but the costs are still uh, fairly high. It's an $11 million proposal, and the uh, it looks really good from the plans. They have a slideshow and everything with computer-generated graphics. Uh, It's going to contain all sorts of meeting rooms that are open to the public for different groups to use. 
Um, it's going to contain things like space for community gardens and gardening workshops. Uh, they even included workshops for pottery and woodworking in there, which smells like a pet project to me. But I mean, I might try it if it's there, if it's for, if it's <laughs> open to the public. Right. Um, and it's built on a 30 acre plot, so it's going to be pretty large and significant. I am uh, cautiously optimistic about this. I think Madison as a uh, car dependent suburb is pretty lacking in third places that you can go without having to spend money. Um, I've certainly been feeling the burn on that myself. Mm. Uh, so having, having anywhere to go that is um, not just a, uh, an underfunded park and maybe has uh, in- indoor places to collaborate with others would be a, a, a boon to this city, I think. Um, but it was met with some consternation by council members who felt left out of the planning process. Um, and I, I sent you another rather long clip. It's it's um, they they balked at the price tag, and there nobody was really sure about what had been uh, available to them before, or whether it was getting dumped on them to vote in that session. So uh, it, things mm. got a little heated, and uh, I. I was lucky to be online to catch all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And let's play that. Uh, well, it, it is rather, it is longer. It's like six minutes. So we'll only play the first bit of it because right at the beginning, you can tell like there's a, there's a pretty underhanded, you know, like uh, underhanded compliment in it just right at the top. And so we'll play that and we'll come back. It's the one, it's the, uh, the clip uh, where the counselor and the mayor are talking. This is no sp- no secret to anybody. I'll say based on listening to what you're saying, and I'll start with this. It'll be great to have you reengaged. Yeah, and so there you go. There's, uh, <laughs> that was, uh, yeah, that that was it. That, that that was what I wanted to play. There was that was that was the mayor, right, Tristan, uh, telling a council member like, oh yeah, it'd be great to have you reengaged. Like you know, like really super nice smile on his face. You know all this, and like what he's telling him is like, uh, I don't know where you've been. <laughs> Yeah, that was Mayor Paul Finley talking to Councilman. I think I I said his on his name Tom, Tommy something. Uh, Powell, I think Councilman mm-hmm. Powell. Um, sorry, didn't have the uh, didn't have that ready to go. Uh, still learning all their names. Yeah, Teddy Powell. That's it. Um, so yeah, uh, Powell's argument was that he had tried to be engaged, but every time he went over to the mayor's office, uh, the, the mayor's people, uh, were kicking them out, uh, saying they were in the way and asking or, uh, asking useless questions or that sort of thing. He mm-hmm. said that they had been, but the mayor said they had been open with this information for years and repeated that it'd be nice to have you engaged line again. And at some point, Teddy Powell was like, you're going to let me finish. I let you finish through that. You're not going to attack me. I'm going to finish. Uh, yeah. so, yeah, very uh, very very hot session here in Madison. Yeah, and that's what I was saying before our commercial break that it is not unusual if you if you actually watch some of these city council meetings and school board meetings to uh, observe all sorts of petty antics, uh, feuding. Um, yeah, uh, some some interesting exchanges you'll you'll get from these elected officials. So. Uh, it- 
Well, in in your notes, you you just mentioned that there were a lot of uh, p- comments from the public that that were uh, not in favor of of the community center. Is that is it, did it seem seem like that was the consensus in the room? Which is obviously the consensus in the room. It you know it, it probably people understand, but it needs to be said that you know the consensus of the room is not necessarily the consensus of the population. Right? It's a very select group, but uh, the people in the room seem to be opposed to it. Uh, if I remember right, there was a split, um, but I, I think it tends to be the people who are panicking about an imminent change that come mm-hmm. to city council meetings to have their voice heard because they they otherwise feel left out, which is completely understandable. So I do remember, uh, I, I think Miss Margie was there again, uh, or it may have been somebody else, uh, complaining about the city's priorities. Uh essentially wanting them to refurbish the existing senior center or focus on uh, sidewalks or lighting somewhere. And I'm not, I don't fully understand the state of all of those things. Again, I just live on the edge of Madison and drive through select parts of it on the daily. But, um, but I'm, I'm even the council members themselves were concerned about dropping $11 million on a community center, writing the check today for a multi-year project and wondering what they might be, Mm ignoring as an opportunity cost um most of their finances seem to come from like bond issuances and stuff is what they talk that's the majority of what they talk about in the meetings so um what's the timeline for this what what are when are when are they expected to actually vote yay or nay on it uh they actually already have they did approve it in a working session that happened between uh between city council meetings so i was not listening in on that stream but i caught the notes later they did manage to get the financial review they wanted and uh, vote yay on it. I don't know how unanimous it was, but it was enough to get it through. So I think the timeline is something like three years. Okay. Um, wow. Which is not too long for something yeah. of that size. For sure. All right. Well, well hopefully it lives up to uh, the brochures and everything. And the last one on your list was uh, this medical marijuana stuff. Yeah, my uh, my notes fell a bit short that month. It was just hard for me to connect and connect the enti- uh, catch the entire stream. Um, but there was a there was a proposal that would have an ordinance that would have allowed medical marijuana dispensaries to be set up in Madison. Um, and uh, after a lot of back and forth, uh, public hearings and arguments amongst the council, uh, it was uh, it was shot down. Uh, I. I don't remember if that was actually in another working session or if it was at a point where my stream cut off. Um, but uh, unfortunately, like, you know, I'm not really that surprised about it. Uh, we're here in a pretty uh, conservative white Alabama town. Um, they threw up a bunch of old arguments about, like, not wanting to see traffic and loitering coded language to anybody familiar with historical <laughs> marijuana laws. Um, right. But what was surprising is that the there were a lot of public commenters that appeared to talk about that. And it was a pretty even split. It wasn't overwhelmingly <laughs> against. Um, unfortunately uh, to me, the uh, some of the council members took the opinion of the police chief particularly heavily. And his opinion mm-hmm. was that they should wait and see how it plays out in surrounding areas. I'm not really aware which counties and towns uh, have supported such uh, legalization like this. Huntsville has, right? Yeah, Huntsville did uh, yeah. pass an ordinance to that effect, as did Athens, Of mm. interestingly enough. 
And it's also interesting that it's also interesting that Madison of all places voted again because it's not, you know, it's it's a medical marijuana dispensary that we're talking about here. It's not we're not talking about recreational stuff. And uh, it's interesting because uh, Mike Ball who's a representative in the state house from Madison, he was one of the people spearheading the legalization of medical marijuana in Alabama. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. and as much as I disagree with Mr. Ball on, on most everything, um, I have always given him a lot of credit for his work on medical marijuana reform. And, and mm -hmm. I don't know that we would be where we're at today without some of yep. his efforts. So, absolutely. yeah, I, I, that's a good point, Jacob. I mean, this is his some of his home turf. Yeah. Uh, so I, I so that it's interesting to me. Yeah, that that there's, you know, these these different representatives from the same area taking totally opposite stances on a very obvious issue. So, yeah, uh, I suspect that's something we're going to see again. Um, I'll give it two years before this kind of legislation rolls around again, um, because I, I do think that the police chief is going to be wrong about that watching other areas uh right yeah well obviously. suffer some sort of consequence right yeah 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 <laughs> all right well tristan i think this was great uh i appreciate it was there anything else that you wanted to make sure that we uh uh, uh that we talked about before we let you go uh no i just say if you, if you have a listener that lives in madison that wants to go and be another voice on these uh in these council meetings um they uh, they they have a you got three minutes to tell them what you want, uh, and uh, they could use the. Uh, it'd be nice to have more people engaged, uh, to quote the mayor. <laughs> Tristan well, Gilbert, in February. Yep, see you in February. Appreciate it, Tristan Gilbert, Madison City Council Watcher. Uh, we're going to be talking to him every month towards the end of the month about this, so we appreciate that. Um, Adam, you had uh, another update about pre-k about pre-k in alabama talk to us about what's been going on there sure um it is pre-k registration time alabama first class pre-k registration for the 2023-24 school year opened on january 15th and may be completed on the alabama department of early childhood education's website all children in alabama who will be four years of age by september 1st of 2023 are eligible to register Students will be selected via random drawing at the local site level. Yes, random drawing, which I'll get to in just a moment. So it's a good time to remind folks that Alabama's first class pre-K program is really successful. Over the past 15 years, while Alabama has ranked at or near the bottom on virtually every quality of life metric, the pre-K program has been at or near the top. From the Alabama School Readiness Alliance, quote, researchers from UAB and the Public Affairs Research Council of Alabama have followed the progress of students through eighth grade and found that regardless of zip code, demographics, or school, first-class pre-K graduates are more likely to be proficient in reading and math on state assessments, while less likely to be chronically absent from school, to be held back a grade, to need special education services, and to have a serious disciplinary issue. Pretty, pretty good research, I would say. Here's the problem. Only 45% of the state's four-year-olds are actually enrolled in the program. So we have this successful program, yet less than half of Alabama's families have access to it. Meanwhile, you have legislators like Senator Arthur Orr, for example, discussing a $500 million tax rebate but for less money than that, we could expand pre-K to be available to 100% of Alabama's four-year-olds. 
Imagine how much better our state could be with just this one investment. Thousands of children would directly benefit in multiple ways. Thousands of families would get help with childcare, reducing their bills or freeing them to work more hours or different hours or re-enter the workforce. Think about the job creation with the hiring of additional teachers and assistants in every county of the state, including some of the most uh, impoverished parts of our state that have very little economic development. And there you have the ripple effects across local economies, right? These pre-K teachers, the assistants, now that they are in place in some of these areas, they're going to be spending money in these areas, they're going to be shopping, they're going to be paying bills, paying taxes, etc., etc. Meanwhile, less of our young people will start elementary school behind, and we can actually make a real difference in the achievement gap. Every child in every family in Alabama deserves high-quality, free pre-kindergarten. It's the right thing to do for young people and their families. It's the right thing to do for our public education system. And it's the right thing to do for our communities and our economies. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's such that, that's such a an important thing to note about because every you know, when we mentioned this during the the Madison City Council meeting uh uh updates, the one of the con- uh, one of the concerns about the community center was opportunity cost. Opportunity cost. Opportunity yeah. cost is just what is it costing me if you know, it it the there's this upfront, this in-your-face cost. If I, you know, if I buy a cheeseburger, right, for for five dollars, it costs me five dollars. But it also costs me other things that I could have bought with that five dollars. I could have gotten a Bojangles chicken sandwich for five dollars, right, instead of this cheeseburger. Do you know? And and so there are these opportunity costs. And so with, you know, with the a five hundred million dollars spending that on a tax rebate, a one-time check. That for, for the vast majority of people is going to be a, a a very small amount. I mean, right. don't get me wrong. Vast majority of us in Alabama need any kind of money that we can get, frankly, uh, because we are a poor state, and Alabama does its best to keep working class people poor. Right. So, if, you know, the government wants to hand out checks. There's going to be plenty of us that are, you know, not super, uh, you know, terrified by that thought. But I think you're right in pointing out the opportunity cost. You know, what benefit will we gain from this one-time tax rebate as opposed to an investment such as this? Yeah, universal pre-K. How much more benefit could average people in Alabama realize from that kind of public investment uh, versus just cutting a one-time check? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, You know, in this report, it it comes to some pretty, you know, the it comes to some pretty rosy conclusions, but you know there there are some things in addition to the issue of not enough of our you know not enough of our pre kindergarten age children having access to this. Uh, there are some other issues with with the program, right? Yeah, I mean the first class program is very successful, and I want to you know again state that. Uh, but it has a diverse delivery option, which means that those classrooms can be not just at public schools, but also at Head Start. Which is fine, but also at child care centers and churches, which gets into a whole nother uh, can of worms. And the Alabama School Readiness Alliance, the Pre-K Task Force, it's a real who's who of corporate education reformers and business interest in the state. You know, think former state superintendents like Tommy Bice and, you know, the Business Council of Alabama. 
So I do understand the rationale behind the model, particularly as the state scales up, but I am definitely wary of it. And frankly, it just makes the most sense to me to prioritize adding these classrooms to our existing public schools, mm-hmm. you know, privatization concerns aside. Right, right. Yep, absolutely. Um, and so with that, we are coming up on the end of the program. We've got a great overtime lined up for you. We're going to be talking to Ryan Cave from, uh, he's the executive, uh, he, he's a staff for the United Football Players Association, which is the union affiliated with the Steelworkers Union uh, that represents football players in the U.S. Football League. Uh, so very cool. Uh, looking forward to talking to him. We're also going to be um, uh, analyzing Jordan Peterson's advice for getting a raise. Uh, we're going to be taking a look at Candace Owens uh, attacking Amazon workers for some reason in her attack on Steven Crowder, uh, which is super bizarre from, you know, ostensibly like a, a populist, you know, <laughs> a populist movement of, you know, conservative people. Very strange, very strange behavior, but, uh, but you know, that, uh, that tracks if you actually understand what the movement is about. Uh, so just a few plugs before we wrap up here on the radio. Uh, UMWA folks, as I mentioned earlier, still on strike. You can donate at paypal.me slash UMWA strike pantry. Just a reminder, friends of the show, Obed Edom have a new album out. Check it out on their band camp. Uh, the uh, Labor Notes ha- continues to have ongoing online workshops. The next one is on February 7th. It is what to do when your union breaks your heart. Very good advice there. Uh, leave us a voicemail. Give us money. 844-899-TVLR or our website, tvlr.fm. See you later.